to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Let's see, as we approach the ninth week of working from home, Lauren and I are starting to get a little crafty and creative. Well, at least Lauren is. Well, I've been watching a lot of HGTV and Food Network, and we've been doing a lot of cooking, but my new project is... I want to totally redecorate my own room. So, Lauren, what are we talking about here? I mean, are you knocking down walls and putting <laughs> up new paint colors or more like buying a new comforter and throw pillows? Well, I live in an apartment, so I think my complex would be a little upset if I knocked down any walls. Probably, yeah. Uh, even that. though, like, I'm so on the Chip and Joanna train of, like, <laughs> we'll make the whole apartment open concept. But um, uh, I just want to buy, like a new bed. I have a couch in my room that I don't really like anymore. So I want to get rid of that and put a new desk so I can have like a home office, uh, you know, a new dresser set. I don't know. I'm just like, I think cause I'm home more, I'm ready to like nest a little more than normal. You know, usually I'm just like, okay, I have a bed and a TV. I'm good. But now I want to like make it a space. I love that. So good. <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't say I've necessarily been doing too, too many creative projects, but I did order a new vacuum cleaner, um, which I'm really excited about. It might be a sign that COVID-19 has just been going on way too long and it's starting to get to me because I'm legitimately so excited about this vacuum. It's navy and red, so I can be patriotic. <laughs> Even while That's cleaning awesome. my apartment. <laughs> but I did, uh, last week, I did plant some tomatoes for the first time. Um, I've never planted tomatoes before, so I'm a little apprehensive. I don't exactly know how it's going to go, but I, I will give you all status updates as to whether That's, I actually get tomatoes or not. That's such a good summer crop, Virginia. I'm so proud of you to pick that out. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. I appreciate your moral support. All right, so on to more important things, pets. Yes, last week we asked you to tweet your cute pet stories and pictures at us, and you did not let us down. Dr. Kevin Pham, a good friend of ours, at KL underscore Pham tweeted and said, quote, not technically my pet, but my buddy's been DJing live on Twitch since the bars and clubs are closed. Here he is with his hype man, Taco the Corgi. That picture was amazing. I just, I, I tweeted back and responded, I do not like club music, but if that dog was DJing, I would definitely <laughs> go to that festival. Yeah, yeah no, it was <laughs> totally precious. And so creative. I love how creative people have been during this with like, okay, we can't go somewhere and DJ, so I'm going to DJ in my living room with my corgi. That's awesome. So if you have a cute animal and you did not get a chance to tweet those photos at us, it's not too late. Lindsay Fifield, uh, also a friend of the show, a friend of ours, tweeted a photo of her dog in her kitchen with her as she cooked. Her name's Daisy May. She's so sweet. And she was like this perfect little circle on the floor. I would love to see more photos of your pets. So make sure that you check that out. We still want to see your photos. Yeah, it's not too late. You can hop on Twitter and tweet at us using the hashtag problematic women um, and be sure to stay tuned until the end of the show because we will have uh, a new twitter question for you all this week all right lauren what is the lowdown on the show today up on today's problematic women we have a great show for you we talk with charlotte pence bond the vice president's daughter about her new podcast and youtube show marriage and growing up in the pence household heritage legal fellow amy swearer joins us to talk guns the second amendment and her new role co-hosting scotus 101 Plus, Elena Richardson, the director of Heritage's Young Leaders Program, joins us to discuss what COVID-19 means for summer internships at Heritage. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. 
Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's dive right in. We are so excited to welcome our next guest, Charlotte Pence-Bond, to the show. Charlotte, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You have just launched your own news program. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. It's called The Little News Briefing, and it is specifically designed for kids to be able to get the news in a way that is safe and easy for them to understand. So my first question is, why did you decide to launch this show? I, I mean, I originally kind of wanted to do something for uh, kids during this time um, that everyone was kind of stuck in quarantine and slowing the spread, and they were just really on my heart. And so I started thinking about it, and I was remembering that when I was in second grade was when 9-11 happened, and talking to my husband about it, and I was saying, you know, we weren't allowed to go you know, into the living room. I know because the TV was on and we would have had nightmares and would have been scared. And so I remember not being able to go into the living room. And I think we sent my brother in there to like check it out and to like spy and tell us what was happening. And, but I was thinking how a lot of kids are probably in a kind of a similar position right now. There's a lot of stuff on the news that sounds a little bit scary and it's a little bit unknown even to us adults. And, you know, I thought the the difference right now is that everybody is at home. So you might not be allowed to watch the news, but it's kind of hard when you're all at home and there's probably the TV on. And so I wanted to make something that was a little bit of a briefing for kids that was similar to the press briefings that adults are watching. Yeah. So Charlotte, I want to ask you a little bit more about that. So uh, the show comes out every other day. There's an episode released on YouTube, or it's also available in podcast format on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, really wherever you get your podcast. So the idea of the show, I think, is so creative because obviously there's so many parents at home right now. There's so much going on, but they want to keep their kids informed. But like you say, like this is a sensitive issue. It's a big topic. So it's so awesome to have this resource that's age appropriate for kids. And you obviously grew up in a home that was very adept to the news and very involved in what was going on in the world. So how did your parents, even from a young age, kind of learn to sit down with you and talk about big issues that were going on in the world? Yeah, you know, it's it's something with this, uh, this podcast and show that I've, I've been noticing more and trying to be really intentional about not making it politically opinionated necessarily, because I do think that that's really the role of parents to decide what news they're talking to their kids about, what controversial issues they're talking to their kids about, and and how they want to bring those things up. So in this show, um, I've tried to keep it really educational and just giving a lot of the facts. But um, I think in our house, my parents were really good at that because it was something that was just a part of everyday life. I mean, my dad was you know, when we're talking about politics around the dinner table, it was just, you know, what did you do at work today? That would be the conversation. It wasn't necessarily always, you know, politically charged. And so 
it was just a topic that we talked about casually, but I think that it's for every parent to kind of be able to decide what they bring up with their kids. I love that you incorporate your parents in the show. They've both been (laughs) on. uh, And that's so special for the kids to see that the vice president and the second lady want them to be informed. Mm -hmm. What sort of response are you receiving from the kids who listen? Yeah, um, I've gotten a lot of questions in and people can send questions to littlesnewsbriefing at gmail.com. So you can either send it as an email or you can send it in as a video. And so we've had a lot of kids sending in videos of themselves asking questions. And it's been really cool because a lot of them have questions about very specific questions about the coronavirus. And they're good questions. I mean, I have to do my research to answer them. And I've noticed, you know, kids like to be taken seriously. They don't want to be treated like they can't handle information. And typically it's it can be scarier to kids when they're actually not given information because then their just imaginations are allowed to run wild, which is the same as us adults. So I think that, you know, they've had um, they've gotten a lot of questions in that have been really good. Interviewing my parents was really fun. My dad was on the first show and it, it was it's challenging to interview your parents because you kind of just want to talk to them like normally. And I remember I asked my dad to do it and I thought, you know, we would Skype from his you know home office and he wanted to do it at the White House and he wanted to have like the backdrop that he always does for his like serious interviews. So he has like a very legit background and I have like, I'm like in my, you know, closet basically. Um, And so it's, it's great. And he took it really seriously, which was really nice. I think that's so awesome. It really is special for kids to be like, wow, that's the vice president. And he's talking to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So cool. So where do you see the show going? I mean, do you think this is something that you'll continue even after coronavirus? Yeah, um, I I want to. I'm going to kind of see how it goes. I mean, I I've started incorporating things into the show that are not just about coronavirus. So They're a little more about current events, but not um, necessarily giving too much information about maybe what's going on in the world, but just explaining to kids, you know, the history of certain things. So I think as we get into election season, too, I think there will be a lot of questions about that. And we can start talking about our democracy and uh, we can start talking about, you know, how the Constitution is set up. I love that. That's it's such a great resource and I think such a needed resource And this isn't your first foray into children's products. You've also written a number of children's books with your mom, featuring the Pence family bunny, Marlon Bundo. First, can you tell us a story about this famous bunny and why you and your mom decided to write the book? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah, we... Yes, I have a bunny, a real bunny. Um, His name is Marlon Bundo, and I got him in college. And um, he became kind of weirdly famous um, when we moved to D.C. I think the media just really picked up on the fact we had a bunny and thought it was hilarious. And um, it's really funny because it showed us how different, you know, culturally the United States are because we'll have people tell us, oh, yeah, I always had a bunny growing up. And then we'll have people be like, why would you have a bunny um, in your house? And so we had a, we had him. We moved him to D.C. with us and he just kind of became famous through an Instagram account that I, I started for him. So my mom and I wanted to do a children's book. I've always wanted to write children's books. And so we did it together and she illustrated. So the first, we have three books out now. So the first book was uh, following my dad around and learning about the role of the vice presidency. 
So fun. Well, and you've also written another book about your dad and your relationship with your dad called Where You Mm -hmm. Go, Life Lessons from My Father. Could you share one of those life lessons with us today that your dad taught you? Yeah. You know, the main one I always kind of go back to is following your dreams, but then taking your family with you. I think my parents are really good at doing that. It was always my dad's job was never just my dad's job. It was something that we were very much allowed to be a part of. And we were allowed to be involved as much as we wanted or as little as we wanted. So we never like had to go to a fundraiser or anything. If we didn't want to go, we didn't have to. And it really allowed us to have our own opinions and develop our own thoughts about politics and policy and, um, you know, be like other other families around the country who not everybody agrees with everybody in most families. And so that's like my family, too. And I think that it helped us to be able to talk to people that don't agree with us. My dad has always really shown me that and my mom together that when you you follow your dreams and you go after things, you do so as a family and you do so as a couple. And I want to talk a little bit more about growing up in the Pence household, because I feel like right now, you know, your dad is kind of like America's dad right now. And, and you have such a, a great relationship with both of your parents. What did your mom and dad do when you were so young to lay such a great foundation uh, for the relationship that you have today? You know, that's a good question. I, I really like I like that you said he's America's dad. I Because honestly, starting the Littles News Briefing was kind of based off of that idea because I was, you know, seeing him on TV every night and I was being reassured, but I was realizing like, he's also my actual dad. And so it's easy for me to be reassured watching him on the news and other people might not have that. And other kids might, you know, need another resource to be reassured and encouraged during this time. But I think my parents were, you know, that they really were encouraging to us to, to figure out what was our passion and to go after that. I mean, we were never, I don't know, we, we were never like pushed in a certain direction. We all had very different interests growing up. And then throughout like adulthood, even, I mean, my brother's in the military, my sister's law school and I'm, you know, I'm in grad school now, but I'm, I'm went to film school and worked in Hollywood and, and we all just, we have very different interests. I think my parents really cultivated that in us. They had us try new things and, and go to do things that we were scared of or nervous about or didn't think we were good at to kind of try things out. So I think that's a big reason that now I I don't ever really feel like, you know, if I'm going after something that I'm passionate about, that they're not going to be supportive of it if they feel that that's something I'm being called to do. That's huge. That's so cool. And yeah. Charlotte, by by now, does it feel just super normal and natural that your dad is the vice president? Or does it still sometimes hit you that, whoa, <laughs> oh my goodness, there's my dad, like you say, on TV, working alongside the president of the United States? You know, it's it's funny. At the end of the day, it's always been, you know, he's still just my dad and this is his job. But I, I don't, I, I feel like it's one of those things you probably look back on and you think that it was so crazy but when you're in it, it's it's just how how life is right now. And so especially since I was there, I was on the campaign trail and I wrote about that a lot in the book um, you mentioned, Where You Go. I mean, I travel with them almost every day that they my parents were on the campaign trail. And so I think that that, you know, that whole process 
was surreal looking back, but at the time, again, it was just, it was just life and it was just what we were doing. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't see it as, as crazy probably as I will in the future telling people about it when life goes back to normal a little bit, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One thing we talk a lot about on the show is, is dating and relationships and you are recently married. Congratulations. Thanks. So uh, how did you meet your husband, Henry? And what was it like? I mean, you are a little bit in the limelight being the vice president's daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, I met him. um, So I met him at my brother's wedding um, technically my brother kind of was trying to set us up ever since then. So, um, Henry and my brother are both pilots in the military and they were in training together. And so, um, they just kind of became friends. And I think as I started talking, I would call my brother and talk to him about, you know, religion and politics and all these like big concepts. And he would always be like, you know, I, I keep talking to my friend Bond about this. He calls him Bond by his last name. <laughs> He's like, I think, you know, you guys, like, he keeps talking to me about the same exact things that you keep talking to me about. And so it became kind of a joke that we should meet and all this stuff. And so my brother and sister-in-law kind of pushed it a little bit. And eventually Henry asked for my number and he came um, and took me on a date uh, about, I guess, oh, almost two years ago. So, yeah, and then we we dated long distance for about a year and got engaged last July. I love it. We all need those people in our lives that are like <laughs> looking out for us. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best. Yeah. So how have you and Henry been staying busy and active during quarantine? Yeah, you know, so he's in the military and he's actually deploying. So we just wanted to get married this past December, pretty quickly planned a wedding. So we would marry before he deployed. Um, so we've been affected by it in a way a lot of military families have. He's actually quarantined away from me because he will be uh, deploying. So just to take extra precautions. So it's hard to be apart. It's something you sign up for in the military, but it's it's much harder than I probably even thought it would be. But it's a good thing that it's hard, you know, it's because you love that person. And so we have not been physically together that much during this quarantine, unlike a lot of other couples. Yeah, well, we know that when when one spouse serves, they both serve. So we certainly <laughs> we certainly thank you both for your service. That's Thanks. a huge deal and yeah, incredibly challenging anytime, but especially when there's a global pandemic going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, Charlotte, thank you so much for joining us. We have a couple other interviews to do, but can you stick around to finish the show with us? Yeah, absolutely. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Virginia Allen, Rachel Del Judas, Kate Shrinko, and Rob Bluey bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. I am joined by Amy Swearer, Heritage Foundation Legal Fellow and the new co-host of the very popular podcast, SCOTUS 101. Amy, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, Amy, at Heritage, you're really known as one of our resident gun experts. You do a lot of research and writing on Second Amendment issues and gun laws and and legislation. But I want to begin by just asking you how you personally became so passionate about the Second Amendment. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I actually, a lot of people just assume that I grew up with firearms and that it was, you know, something that started off very personal. Uh, but the reality is I, I didn't. You know, my, my dad's from uh, inner city Philadelphia. Um, you know, we, we never really grew up with firearms. It wasn't our thing. Uh, and then when I was in college, I actually got to know um, some girls on the rifle team at Nebraska, and they sort of were the ones who shepherded me into, um, you know, firearms and and responsible gun ownership. And so it was just sort of something I did on the side. And then after law school, when I, I joined Heritage uh, as a visiting legal fellow, um, I, I started writing on the Second Amendment sort of tangentially from a an aspect of overcriminalization. So I wrote a paper on the Second Amendment rights of nonviolent felons, um, this idea of why can't Martha Stewart own a gun? You know, she's not a danger to public safety, um, but be, because of our laws, she, she can't. And then right around that time is also when uh, there, there started to be sort of the first wave of big mass public shootings in recent history. Um, so like the, the Sutherland Springs shooting, the Parkland shooting. Um, and so it was a role that I just kind of took on from an overcriminalization perspective of, you know, why why are we using this as an excuse to punish law-abiding gun owners who really aren't the problem? Um, and then through that, it, it just sort of evolved into, you know, heritage, uh, as you're well aware, um, started a school safety initiative. And so that was sort of a natural transition for me to look at this from, you know, school safety perspective, um, from a, a mental health and wellness perspective, you know, how does mental illness play a role in all of this? Um, and it, it really, I, I sort of grew into the role. And I, I'm, I'm very thankful for that opportunity because it has also become, um, you know, in my private life, in my personal life, um, you know, the, the Second Amendment gun ownership ha has become an increasing part of, of me as a person. Uh, and so it has just been a, a very good natural fit, a natural progression. Um, and, and that's sort of what got me to this point. Well, and one of my favorite things that you write on a monthly basis are uh, articles for the Daily Signal that um, talk about the cases that we've seen from the previous month of individuals using their firearms in self-defense. And those monthly articles have now translated into a database on the Heritage Foundation website. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that database offers? Uh, well, I'm glad you enjoy it because it, it's certainly one of my favorite things to, to do every month is to, to update this database and to write these stories. Uh, so the, the database um, is sort of the fulfillment, I think, of this monthly series we've been doing, highlighting just 10 or 12 instances from the last month where uh, lawful gun owners used their guns in, in self-defense. Um, and while we were putting that together, you know, we started finding dozens, sometimes hundreds of, of these stories from the last month that were, you know, maybe getting 30 second news snippets, maybe a hundred word article in a local paper. And if you blinked, you missed it. Um, but we were only choosing 10 or 12 of those, you know, for, for editorial reasons, right? We, we can't highlight, you know, a hundred of them in a, in a meaningful way. So we just started keeping track of them over the years, um, you know, just... Uh, putting them into sort of our own internal database. And, and eventually we looked at this and said, there are so many of these stories. We, we, we have to do something with this. Uh, and so we decided to do an, an interactive map um, where you can now go and, uh, you know, each dot represents 
uh, an instance of defensive gun use and you can click on it and and see sort of the the main facts right away you know uh, what type of gun was used what was the the context was it domestic violence was it um, you know stopping an armed robbery was it a home invasion um, and so you can kind of get the gist of what happened when and where um, but then there's also the link to the media article so that you can even dig in deeper if you want and our ultimate goal is actually to to have a mechanism for people to be able to report stories that we know we missed. We we know we're missing stories, um, and and we want to be able to just highlight these for Americans um, so that they can they can look at stories that they're missing in their states, in their neighborhoods. They can see these stories and and really get a sense of just how important lawful gun ownership is. And gun ownership is something that, you know, it's so kind of in the fabric of who we are as Americans. And we saw at the beginning as COVID-19 began to strike that there were uh, a lot of gun shops that were literally, you know, they were running out of their inventory because so many people were going and buying ammunition and buying guns. And that's something that I think we've seen before in, you know, previous uh, crises in America that with within us is just this innate desire to protect ourselves, to protect our, our loved ones when we are looking at crisis situations. And it was obviously so strategic on the part of the founding fathers to put, uh, to put that, um, self-defense kind of right there, uh, as the Second Amendment. And why do you think, though, that, you know, it, it was so critical in the founders' minds to put it as the Second Amendment instead of, you know, the fourth or the seventh or just much further down the line? Well, I think you have to look at the context of where the founders were, right? So, so first of all, they had just come from a context where King George, uh, through his, his military generals, had, had tried to disarm the uh, American colonists. That's what Lexington and Concord were. It, it was an attempt to disarm them, to take their guns and powder, and to essentially leave them defenseless in the face of what they consider tyrannical laws, that they had no meaningful recourse. And, and this was something that historically in England had been the case, that even though there was technically a right to keep and bear arms under the English Bill of Rights, uh, that historically what kings had done was to have a select militia uh, that they would then use to uh, oppress an unarmed populace. And, and so there's that sort of historical context um, in which, you know, that that armed population is is a a countermeasure against government impulses toward tyranny. Um, but then there's also a sense uh, that that's more based in this natural right of self defense that we don't cede our natural right of self defense to the government because again, even even an all powerful government um, that that has a monopoly on the use of force, they're not going to be there all the time. And, you know that the police aren't my personal bodyguards. That's not how it works. And so when we talk about in the Second Amendment, this idea of the security of a free state, it's not just this idea of, of a countermeasure against tyranny, uh, though that certainly is important, um, but that also our individual rights and liberties a lot of times are dependent upon our ourselves for our, their own defense, um, whether that's sort of communal action like you, you saw uh, during the riots in, in Ferguson or the L.A. riots in the early 90s, where the law enforcement simply could not be there. Uh, you know, resources were, were stretched and it was an emergency situation. Um, or whether it's, uh, you know, individual people who, 
you know, someone's breaking into their home and they, law enforcement simply does not uh, get there in time, um, that, that the security of, of a free state, you know, that, that sort of organized liberty uh, is protected by ourselves a lot of times. And I, I think, you know, you, you talk about this surge in, in gun ownership and gun sales. Um, I, I think COVID-19 sort of opened up for, for a lot of Americans for the first time, very real fears about, you know, is the government going to be able to protect me? Um, and they started questioning that probably for the first time in, in their lives. You know, some of them, if they live in nice, safe neighborhoods, they, they hadn't really thought about it until they start seeing entire police departments decimated or, or saying, you know what, we're not going to respond to certain crimes. I mean, I think it really hit for the first time, you know, okay, this is what it means to safeguard the security of a free state. And there has been a lot of debate about the necessity of guns recently, as many gun shops have been forced to close for a time during COVID-19 because of states deeming those shops as non-essential businesses. In your opinion, why should gun shops be recognized as essential businesses? A lot of this actually comes down to the, the regulations that the government has already put in place. You know, I, I think this has less to do with the question of are gun stores an essential business uh, and more to do with the question of can people exercise their fundamental rights? So in a lot of these states like California, New York, um, the existing laws from that state essentially say you can only purchase a gun. And, and in the case of California, ammunition through a, a licensed dealer. So the only way that you can exercise your right is to go through these gun stores, uh, meaning that for purposes of, of exercising that fundamental right, that gun store is essential because it's the only avenue you have. Um, and so when you look at it through the lens of the Second Amendment, you know, this isn't like saying we're going to shut down a library or a bookstore and you can order this, you know, you, you can order a book on eBay and it can be delivered to you. You can't do that with firearms. You know, you, you d despite popular gun control uh, narratives, you, you can't actually just have guns delivered to your home. Um, and so because of pre-existing laws that we have and, and burdens that already exist on that right, that gun store is essential because it is the only way that the government ha has has opened up an avenue for gun ownership. Um, and so that's really sort of the, the battle that we're seeing now are people saying, look, if you shut this down, you are foreclosing my ability to exercise a constitutional right. And you can't do that. Interesting. No, thanks, Amy, for sharing that perspective. That's really interesting to hear. Now, I do want to pivot just a little bit for a second and talk about uh, your new role of co-hosting SCOTUS 101. For those who maybe haven't listened to the podcast before, can you just tell us a little bit about SCOTUS 101? So SCOTUS 101 is sort of an overview of what's happening at the Supreme Court. So for those of you who don't know, uh, SCOTUS is an acronym for Supreme Court of the United States. And really, the goal of the podcast is to, to do just that, to give people sort of the, the, the 101 of what's going on at the Supreme Court, to break it down uh, for, for laymen, for people who are interested, but maybe don't have the time, energy, or background knowledge to, to really dig in. Um, and so it's, uh, we, we sort of view it as a, a tool for breaking down the, the complicated aspects of the court um, and, and what's going on for the average person. Well, and this is definitely one of our most popular podcasts at Heritage. There's such a loyal listening group to this show. But how did you come to be involved with it? 
I had been on a couple times, I, I think, as, uh, to sort of fill in. Uh, Elizabeth Slattery uh, is, is an amazing host of the show, um, but she's she's had a couple children uh, over the last couple years. Um, so she was on maternity leave for a little bit. And clearly, when when you're having a baby, um, you know, so, sometimes you, you simply need the the support uh, of other people to fill in. So. Um, uh, she unfortunately, uh, for heritage, uh, is leaving to to take a, a different position, um, and so I think it was a natural progression for myself and then my colleague uh, John Carlo to to look at taking this this over. Um, we'd we'd been on it a, a couple times, and um, you know we, we get along quite well. Uh, so uh, I think we're both very much looking forward to it. Elizabeth has has done a phenomenal job. Uh, we certainly have massive shoes to fill, um, you know, and, and we stand on the shoulders of, of everything that she has done. Um, but we're, you know, we're, we're looking forward to, to continuing to, to grow it for, for our listeners. Yeah, no, I know you guys are going to do an awesome job with it. Well, and Amy, you recently uh, wrote a piece about the Supreme Court and gun cases entitled The Supreme Court punts on an easy Second Amendment case. It's been a really long time since the justices have heard a Second Amendment case. What was this case that they did punt on this year? And why do you think that they've been hesitant to hear cases involving the Second Amendment? And will we potentially hear one anytime soon? Yeah, that that is a a very loaded question. (laughs) Um, So I, I think a lot of people were very excited when the court uh, granted certiorari in this case when they said, yeah, we're, we're going to review this case um, out of New York because it really has been uh, a decade since 2010 uh, when the court last heard and decided a meaningful, uh, meaty Second Amendment case, you know, that, that really dug into the issues. Um, so this case out of New York had to do not even with concealed carry, um, but still with the aspect of, you know, what, what are the Second Amendment protections outside of the home? So, so this law in, in New York City essentially forbade uh, lawful handgun owners from taking that handgun outside of their home, uh, with the exception of to, to one of seven gun ranges inside city limits. So they couldn't take it to a second home or to uh, ranges or competitions outside of city limits, because that would have been uh, against this law. Uh, so it's very, very restrictive, um, probably the most restrictive uh, conditions in the nation at, at this point. Uh, and so lawful handgun owners inside the city sued and uh, New York for uh, seven, eight years defended this law in front of the courts. Uh, but then what happened was the Supreme Court took this case and I think New York City saw the writing on the wall and said, we're going to lose this. Uh, and to sort of avoid an adverse ruling on the merits, you know, having the Supreme Court strike it down and, and possibly give a Second Amendment ruling that they weren't going to like, the city caved a little bit and changed its laws ever so slightly um, to to give the gun owners a little bit of what they wanted. They said, okay, you can take it to second homes. You can take it uh, to to gun ranges outside city limits. Um, It's still kind of unclear what the parameters of that law are. So there were a lot of questions um, about, you know, can gun owners stop to go to the bathroom on the way? You know, what is reasonably necessary travel um, and, and ultimately, uh, the argument then became, is the case moot? So when a case is moot, it means that the, the question that they were arguing over no longer exists. And so New York essentially said, well, we changed our law. Uh, we can't argue over a law that doesn't exist. So Supreme Court, you, you have to 
send the case back down. You can't hear this. Um, and ultimately, that's what a majority of the justices decided was that the, the case was essentially moot and there was nothing left for them to really decide. Interesting. So are there any other kind of potential cases that you could see coming down uh, coming down the line that the justices would potentially hear uh, that regard the Second Amendment or we're not sure yet? So, so there are uh, a handful of cases that have been scheduled for conference, which means the the court, you know, in, in chambers is is going to discuss them and, and could potentially uh, grant a new case. The earliest we would hear that case uh, would be next October, uh, and then you know clearly the the court would spend a couple months deciding it. We may not, uh, in this hypothetical case, have a, a ruling on it um, until next summer. Um, so that. That is disappointing for a lot of Second Amendment advocates. But there are a couple, I think, really good cases in the pipeline. Um, There are a couple cases that uh, are challenges to so-called assault weapons bans, as well as some cases that would challenge what are called uh, good cause uh, laws for concealed carry permits um, that essentially limit concealed carry permit to uh, those who show a special need, sort of above and beyond just a general desire for self-defense. Um, and in some states, it, it makes it almost impossible to get a concealed carry permit um, just at all. Uh, and so I, I think those would be some very good potential opportunities for the court to take up. Um, you know, again, I, I know it was disappointing for a lot of gun owners and, and Second Amendment advocates that the court didn't get to the merits of the New York case. Um, and I, I think a lot of us are hoping we don't have to wait another 10 years for the court to take this up. But I think because we've seen um, some changes to the, the dynamic of the court, we've had some new justices up there. There are at least four justices now who have indicated that they really do want to take on a meaningful Second Amendment case. Um, and, and I think overall, I, I think there's a lot of confidence uh, as to how the chief justice, who would be considered sort of the swing justice here, would would vote on the issue. Um, I, I think there's a lot of hope um, that uh, that we will see a meaningful Second Amendment case, uh, if if not in the next term, you know, hopefully in the immediate future. Yeah, interesting. All right, well, Amy, before we let you go, I just want to ask you one last question. I know that you have your concealed carry permit. Can you give all of us ladies just the elevator pitch for why we should maybe consider getting our own concealed carry permit? Uh, So first things first, it it is your constitutional right. Um, This is something that belongs to you. I think a lot of women have this idea of the Second Amendment and gun ownership uh, as being some sort of, you know, middle-aged man's prerogative. Um, But no, it it belongs to you. It is your right to exercise just as much as the the first, you know, the the fourth, the fifth, you know, these are all your rights. Um, and, and I think the, the second thing here is, is to, you know, as, as women, we are at a disadvantage a, a lot of times against crime, even more so than, than men. Um, you know, we, we generally speaking, um, are, are considered, you, you know, uh, easy victims, I think, by a lot of people. And I, I hate cliches, but I, I do agree with the idea of you know, the, the Second Amendment sort of being the great equalizer for women. Um, it, it is inherently, you know, women's rights. You know, Second Amendment rights are women's rights. It, it is a means for us to defend ourselves against people who would deprive us of 
of our rights, of our liberties, um, you know, of, of life and liberty. Uh, you know, th- this is a very important means of protection. Um, and I know a lot of women think guns uh, are, are scary. You know, they're, they're, they're the sort of unknown. Um, but it's, it's a level of, of confidence that it gives you that I, I think a lot of women don't fully understand until they've undertaken um, to, to really learn uh, about firearms and, and to defend themselves in that way. Amy, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you so much for having me. Are you like me, where you have a lot of time at home and just really curious about different things going on? Well, I want to let you know about an exciting new platform available from the Heritage Foundation. While we can't host events in person right now, Heritage Events Live hosts webinars every day on a variety of topics, ranging from ethics during the COVID-19 pandemic to the CARES Act and the economy. These webinars are free, and you can find out more information by going to heritage.org slash events or checking the link in the show notes. You should definitely check it out. Our next guest is a dear friend and a fellow Floridian, Elena Richardson. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Really excited to be here. (laughs) So excited for this. Elena is the director of the Young Leaders Program here at Heritage, which encompasses a lot of leadership and professional programs, but most notably our internship program. She is also a graduate of Florida International University, a wife and a mom to two adorable little ones. I wanted to start out asking how things are in the Richardson household and what has been your quarantine routine? That's a that's a great start, Lauren. Uh, so I have two kids under two. Um, so I have James and Rosalia, and Rosalia is just four months old right now. Um, the routine itself, you know, varies from a day to day, but I actually have to set aside time. I block off time on my calendar, um, usually during their nap times, so that way I can get work done. I think some of the considerations when you're working remotely is the fact that you get all these phone calls, all these video calls that you have to be on. And when are you actually getting the work done? Thankfully, it happens to be when it's nap time. That has been um, something that I have to be very intentional about, especially being a mom to young kids who right now are not in school. So when you think about, you know, what does their day look like? They do need a lot of activities. So we do puzzles with my son. We, you know, do googly eyes and peekaboos with my daughter. Um, my husband has to go in and out of the office depending on what the day and kind of schedule looks like. But for the most part, he is at home as well. So that's been very helpful to trade off, right? Of like when I actually need to be on in front of a computer, he is able to be paying more attention and physically be involved with the kids. So that's been really helpful. But at the same time, it's you have to remind yourself that we're at home during a national crisis um, you know, with our families and trying to work, right? And so just being very intentional about how are you scheduling mental health breaks? So even at the end of the day, we do a walk around our um, community. And, you know, if we try, if we can go to a playground, we'll try to go if there's no other kids at the playground. So we want to be very conscious that our, that our kids are the only ones there. And so that's something that we're um, just be, being mindful of. And so I can't tell you what a firm day-to-day looks like because it does change depending on, you know, if it's raining outside or if my son wants to go out and play. Um, but overall, it's it's something that we have to be very intentional about and um, as well as what our needs are. I'm still nursing. I'm still, you know, I, I enjoy putting lunch together. And so how do you work in those little moments of optimism and enjoyment and fulfillment into your day as well? 
I love that. I love that you guys take the time to go outside. I'm sure with little ones, you know, sometimes taking the effort to pack them up and walk them around might seem like more than it's worth to go get that fresh air. But you're right. It's so important, you know, just mentally and physically to to get outside. I also want to tell our listeners that uh, I was talking to you about maybe 10 or 12 minutes ago, uh, and your daughter was chatting. You were magic the way you were able to put her to sleep. So <laughs> I, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, I, in the same way that sometimes we have to recognize babies cry, you know, I've actually used the same technique to recognize my team's essentially cries, right? Like it, it sounds weird, but you have to respond to what's in front of you. So, yes, I, I was able to put my daughter down in a couple of minutes, right, because I knew it was, she was just getting tired. In the same way, I actually use these little mom senses that I have to impact my team, um, you know, encourage my team in just weekly check-ins. You know, I check in with them at least twice a week on, like, you know, team video calls. One of them is usually on work, right, like what does the week ahead look like? And one of them is actually just checking in and saying, hey, Lauren, how are you? No, but really, how are you, right? Like, you know, what are you going through? How can I be of assistance? Is there anything that you need um, help with or guidance on? And so I've actually, in the same way that I do it to my kids, of like, you know, what's a good pulse, essentially like a good sum on the pulse, you have to then do it with your team. And so, you know, yeah, you use the analogy that I was able to put my daughter down for for a nap right now. (laughs) Um, But in the same way, in the age of covid uh, you have to do the same thing with your teams and those around you. I love that. I, I want you to write a whole book on <laughs> motherhood to manager. Um, well, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I did want to talk about, you know, managing people in person and managing people remote. There are so many similarities, but there, you know, it, it is a lot harder because you're not there. Besides check-ins, what other tips do you have on managing a team while being remote? Yeah, that's you know, I will. I, I won't lie and say that it's easy. Um, one of the things that I've found to be helpful and successful is you find passion points for your team, right? What is something that they've always wanted to work on that maybe they just didn't have enough time to to think about or to um, to work on? I think that's a good start. Another thing is having clear roles. So, for example, my team. We have one person that does internal programming and another who does external programming. We have another person who does like the strategic kind of data stuff. And so essentially kind of making sure that everyone knows what their roles are. But at the same time, with an ever-changing environment, and I'll talk to you later in regards to how some things on my team have changed, including programming that we've had to um, cancel and in in turn start up, um, you know, those roles change. And so it's it's definitely a conversation you have to have with your team of saying your role is going to change in regards to the original roles and responsibilities that you were originally hired on to do. Um, and in the age of COVID, we've had to, you know, essentially adapt and overcome um, the, the challenges that we've had presented, but it also means that there's incredible space for innovation. I was just talking to a fellow manager and saying, you know, for the last two months, we've been able to progress what would have been done in two decades. You know, just take a second and think about that. Think about how your specific work environment has changed in the last two months and how it probably would have taken two decades to get to that point. Working remotely, the future of work just generally when it comes down to how much time you're spending in front of a computer, 
But also, what does this then mean for incentives that you might consider moving forward, right? That you might want a little bit more of a flexibility when it comes down to working remotely and having that time with a family, or you might want to remove time that it would have taken you to commute to your job. I think it also calls into question of, you know, is the eight hour workday something that will remain, especially for people who work in intellectual spaces like a think tank? Um, so I think all of this has really called into question what the future of work looks like. And it, in turn, it also calls into question of what incentivizes your team. So think about that. You have to you have to consider, does your does team member A respond well to a financial promotion or do they respond better to more vacation time or do they respond better to a more flexible schedule where they don't necessarily have to be working nine to five Eastern time? right? They could be working eight hours collectively, right? Like it, I think a lot of this is going to change and being sure, like having a good um, understanding of what your team's needs and wants are, as well as how can they contribute uh, in a more successful way? I think it's all been something that we've had to think about. I think it, it speaks to a topic that we talk about so much on the show of, you know, meeting women where they're at, whether it is an internship, whether it is earlier in their career where they might be single, whether it is when they're a mom uh, or they're moving towards, you know, retirement. Um, you know, the same person can have so many different needs in different places. Uh, I want to talk about how you had your daughter in December. In January. Oh, January. Yeah. In January. Oh, man, time just all blurs together. <laughs> but that means that you went from maternity leave directly into, uh, you know, this kind of pandemic quarantine. And, and I think one thing that's overlooked with women taking maternity leave is the amount of planning that goes into it to make sure that, you know, their team is set up without them for a few months. What was it like to kind of have everything change uh, while you were you know, go, transitioning from maternity leave to coming back into the office? Well, I was originally planning, my intent was to take off four months, um, which is the maximum amount of time that uh, our organization allows. Um, it's not fully paid, but it's it's the maximum time. And I would rather time with my children than, than you know, the money. And so um, I actually ended up coming back to work four weeks early. So I ended up only doing three months. And, you know, I made the decision because, you know, yes, there were so many changes happening in my department that were directly affecting my program, not just for the next couple of weeks, but for the year. Um, and so as a manager, I'm always thinking about systems of success, yes, as, as one aspect, but then thinking about, you know, how am I going to be held accountable to standards, to goals that we had, you know, kind of set aside, to metrics that we were um, using to um, measure success and there's a number of different issues that come into preparing a team when you're gone. And then all of a sudden you're preparing a team for uncertainty with what we've had to go through. Right. It was essentially on a one week notice that I got a phone call saying we're going to be, you know, working remotely moving forward. We're having to end an internship program five weeks early. And then the right now, the summer program is uh, is is in question. And so there was just so much uncertainty happening around my team that I figured, you know, I need to come back. I need to step in and assist and essentially provide, um, I don't know, so, some grounding to the team of saying, it's okay, I'm here. I'm, let's think this through. Let's brainstorm together of what the possibilities are. And, you know, it's interesting because usually I would have said, 
you know, this is not a good idea for a woman who is just coming off of maternity leave because you still have a little bit of mommy brain, not going to lie. You still have a little bit of mommy brain. But what was interesting is that during this time, and this is my second go around, right? I have two kids. Um, This time around, I felt more innovative. I felt that there was a fresher perspective. I felt like I was able to say, well, you know, I've been thinking about some, some ideas. Can I throw, you know, spaghetti to the wall, as they say, um, and I was able to come up with a brand new idea that I pitched to the team and, and we're actually about to launch it. So, um, just to give you some, some, uh, you know, some, some awareness, Lauren is we ended up having to cancel the summer internship program, which was unfortunate. We've never had to do that ever. Uh, we've been around the internship program has been around since 1979. And then, you know, ensuring that there wouldn't be the same type of program for what we call an intern uh, an internship at the Heritage Foundation, we knew that there just wasn't going to be the same quality. And also there's a number of things, right? We have about 300 people on staff adding another 73 to a remote environment, which they don't necessarily know how we work or, you know, the level of, of quality and standard that we have. So I, um, I pitched the Academy, right? With the rise of COVID-19, Heritage Foundation found itself in the same boat as many Americans during this unprecedented time forced to take on tremendous challenge and figure out new ways to get things done. When you think of the Young Leaders Program, you know, we've decided to offer something that, you know, is brand new, is very innovative and without ever having to leave the house. And so it's a unique online learning program where we look at domestic and foreign policy briefings. We look at principles of leadership. So looking at a leadership training as well as America's founding principles. And so we, we take this, we offer pre-recorded videos and then live question and answer sessions. Uh, we're also doing smaller cohorts, so we people are broken up into groups, as well as an optional capstone project, so they can work on, work on a policy issue. So all of this was brand new, right? Again, when you think of, you know, would this have ever come? Maybe, maybe it would have come, but it wouldn't have been as immediate of a response. And so I'm just so happy that the entire foundation has rallied behind this new program of saying, count me in. I'm so supportive, right? We can reach more people um, by way of the academy. So in the first, um, you know, kind of cohort, we're looking to have about 200 people, which traditionally has been, um, you know, that supersedes our numbers in person, right? So summer just alone is 73 people. So we're able to um, almost triple that number. I love that. I think of all the people, I mean, going to D.C. is a big financial burden. So it just opens the doors and and allows a lot more folks to be able to participate. What has been the response from potential participants of the program? The response itself has been incredible. We had almost 400 applications in a one month time frame uh, for the academy. Um, You know, we we just think of the Young Leaders Program traditionally has been a a tremendous resource of intellectual professionalism, practical guidance for young leaders setting out on their careers, as well as the foundational grounding in the building of America where freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and civil society flourish. To offer an offsite kind of in your living room program where people could still connect to the mission of heritage without having that financial burden of coming to Washington, D.C., or maybe you know, because they just have never had it work out for them, right? Like to come to DC is a really big, a really big deal. And especially for some families like my own um, that would say, well, what do you mean you're leaving Miami, Florida? You're leaving the family, you know, to go off and 
seek an, an opportunity in Washington, D.C., that's very different, right? So for, for some uh, families and for some people. So this really provides them a taste of what the Heritage Foundation does, as well as how is it that we're training, right? We, we talk about the fact that we're being a think tank. Um, you know, it really is purely educational. And this is exactly the type of, of program for to do that, to talk about individual freedom, limited government, free enterprise, traditional values, and a strong national defense, all while still working on your leadership skills as well. Well, I know there's so many unknowns moving forward, but if people wanted to get information just on the Young Leadership Program, where can they find that? Yeah, that's great. So if you were to go to heritage.org backslash internships, plural, uh, so heritage.org backslash uh, internships, that would be the best place. And then you can get connected as well to the academy, to the internships, as well as the student briefings that we're able to offer any student groups or organizations. Um, we're happy to assist and even send out pocket constitutions. So go ahead um, and look us up online, or you can also send us an email at youngleadersprogram at heritage.org. Well, Anna, thank you so much for all that you do, mentoring young people, really empowering them to further their career. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, and I can't wait to have you back real soon. At The Daily Signal, we want to make sure you and your family are receiving the most accurate information about the coronavirus. Here's an important message from First Lady Melania Trump. To all of our medical personnel and other frontline responders, on behalf of a grateful nation, thank you. The President and I appreciate all that you're doing to keep the people of our country healthy and safe. In the most difficult of times, the United States never fails to rise to the occasion with both unity and strength. It is because of you that the people of America are receiving the care and treatment they need. We stand united with you and we salute your courageous and compassionate efforts. Our prayers are with all who are fighting this invisible enemy, COVID-19. All right, well, welcome back. It is now that time, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman. And this week it is, Virginia, can you do the honors? Charlotte Pence Bond. (laughs) (laughs) We are so excited to name you Problematic Woman of the Week. For your heart for children, really thinking of them during the pandemic and using your platform to bring hope and comfort to them. But my question to you has nothing to do with that. (laughs) But it's a question that we ask all of our guests. Do you consider yourself a feminist? Why or why not? Yeah, you know, this is such a good question. I've been thinking a lot about it, I feel like, for the past couple of years. And, like, you know, reading more conservative feminists like Christina Summers and people like that. And I don't know. I, I think I would say that I am a feminist in the way that I would describe feminism. Probably not the way that it's been warped in in certain circles. I think that true quote-unquote feminism is is not necessarily acting in your self-interest all the time. I think that conservative feminism would be more described as being selfless, but also being empowered in a way that puts others above yourself sometimes. I think that I personally, um, I mean, I think obviously the, you know, pro-choice, pro-life argument is often talked about in regards to feminism. I definitely think that 
being pro-life is feminist. I think, I think that's pro-life is definitely pro-woman. And I think that the message behind um, the pro-life movement and um, increasingly so I've spoken at a lot of events with uh, pro-life leaders like this past year. And it's just been really inspiring to see a lot of people get behind that idea that I don't think that the message ultimately that the pro-choice movement is sending to people is, is empowering to women. I think that it's, um, it's ultimately, it's a destructive, uh, hurtful message. And I don't think that it, it necessarily gives them the idea that they can rise above unforeseen circumstances, you know, because they're a strong woman. I think I am a feminist, but I would like to redefine it a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. So great. Charlotte, we just really want to thank you so much for your time today, for joining the show. It has been a pleasure talking with you. All right. Well, before we let you all go, we have to share this week's Twitter question. And the question is, what is the first restaurant or coffee shop that you're going to visit when it reopens or once you feel comfortable doing so once again? Lauren, what's it going to be for you? So there's this bar down the street from me in D.C. called Bar Elena. And every Thursday night, they do $5 mystery beer night. And it's just my favorite thing to do with my roommate. Usually I'll go to the gym, uh, late class, and then we'll go straight there. And it, it's just one of those things that, you know, it's inexpensive and the bartenders are so nice. And it's just a fun little weeknight routine that we have. So I'm really looking forward to do that. What about you, Virginia? Oh, that's so fun. You're so creative, Lauren. Mine, I feel like, is so unoriginal. But I just really want to go to Shake Shack. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, that Shack sauce is so good. Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. Like, you just, you can't go wrong mm. with anything there. The burgers. If you haven't had the shroom burger, life-changing. The fries, mm. shakes. It's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. So we want to hear from you all what your restaurants are, bars, coffee shops. So tweet at us and make sure that you use the hashtag problematic women. Yes, Virginia, good point. You have to use the hashtag problematic women or else we won't be able to see it. So make sure with your response, tell us about the delicious food. If Even if you have an old photo, I, I love to see pictures of food, include it and use that hashtag problematic women. All right, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It makes such a big difference. Have a great week, and remember to tweet at us. Hashtag Problematic Women. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.